London Calling, London Walks Connecting. London Walks here with today's London Fix. Story time. History time. This one's for Trevor. It's July 24th, 1911. Hiram Bingham, a wealthy young American academic, is high in the Andes in Peru. He inches his way up a ridge, goes round a promontory, and, sharp intake of breath, there, right in front of him, is the lost city of the Incas. Hiram Bingham has discovered Machu Picchu, the ancient Inca citadel built in the mid-15th century, abandoned a century later, hasn't been seen for hundreds of years. Bingham's find is one of the two greatest discoveries of the 20th century, which brings us to our question, what was going on in London on the day Hiram Bingham made his discovery up on the roof of the Andes, 6,000 miles away. Well, London was breathless with excitement. Breathless with excitement about those magnificent men in their flying machines. Four monoplanes, two piloted by Englishmen, two by Frenchmen, completed the journey. It was the second leg of the Daily Mail Circuit of Britain air race. There had been 30 entrants for the competition. Only four of them stayed the course. The flight from Hendon in North London to Edinburgh was punctuated with stops at Harrogate and Newcastle. The planes averaged an unheard-of 60 miles an hour. And yes, bears repeating, London, and indeed the whole country, was beside itself with excitement. Thousands turned out to witness the takeoffs and landings. The enormous crowds at Hendon Aerodrome overwhelmed caterers. Bread was at famine prices. People slept in the open using newspapers as bedsheets. Must have been something in the air, so to speak, because Hendon wasn't the only place where there was a lot of ballyhoo. The Daily Mirror described the goings-on in the House of Commons as a scene almost unparalleled in its history. The Speaker had to adjourn the session because of the uproar. The Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, was trying to announce the government's determination to disregard the Lord's amendments to the veto bill. His opponents weren't having it. They barracked him calling him traitor and constitution-breaker. The Prime Minister couldn't make himself heard. The House ignored the Speaker's repeated calls of order, order. It was 20 minutes before the Prime Minister could utter a single audible sentence, and he didn't get much further than that. In the words of the Daily Mirror, down swept the din like a wave overwhelming him. Finally, the Speaker had to declare the sitting at an end. There are, of course, eight million stories in the Naked City. One of those stories, on this day in London, 112 years ago, 
was Hugh Cecil Robinson's story. Hugh Cecil Robinson was a member of the Reform Club. Hugh Cecil Robinson took arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing, ended them. That's my supposition, anyway. Hugh Cecil Robinson, who was 55, was a retired civil engineer. He was found shot dead in the bathroom of his rooms at St. James's Place. Whatever it was that impelled him along the closed-in corridor of his final hours, it can't have been money problems. He left over 43,000 pounds. That'd be about six and a half million pounds today. In other news, on July 24th, 1911, London got its first rainfall in 25 days. It was the longest drought since 1887. The downpour was welcome not least because a serious milk famine was bearing down on London and elsewhere in the country thanks to grass on pasture lands having been badly dried up by the sun. And of course the day wouldn't be complete without royal news. We learn that the Prince of Wales was a spectator at his own investiture. After a fashion, the ceremony in Wales had been filmed and it was shown at the Scala Theatre in Leicester Square on July 24th, shown with the Prince of Wales in the audience. Despite that thunderstorm, July 24th, 1911, was a hot day in London, and the papers had plenty of advice about how to cool down, including putting cabbage leaf in the crown of your hat, or, if you'd rather, fitting it up with pieces of green and yellow tissue paper. Almost quaint, isn't it? And completely harmless. What wasn't harmless, what was in fact utterly repugnant, was the outright racism of a piece in the Daily Mirror. I'm quoting, and I'm going to censor the rest of this because it's so odious. The writer speaks of the amused contempt that he discerned on the face of Londoners when they caught sight of dark-skinned people. The writer took the position that that was perfectly all right, to be expected. And that brings me to Trevor. I got on a 328 bus earlier today. A black man was sitting by himself with his satchel on the empty seat beside him. I asked him if I could sit there. He said, yes, of course. He then said, so many people don't want to sit beside a black man, so I make it easy for them by putting something on the empty seat. I said, no, surely that can't be the case. He said, it is. It happens to me every day. He said, sometimes when people see me coming toward them on the pavement, they clutch their purse tightly against their body. It happens every day. I was horrified. Naturally, I thought how much that would get me down, how saddened, how demoralized I would be if I were in his shoes. It struck me that it's maybe not that far removed from an adult version of a schoolchild who's bullied or picked on or ostracized by his classmates. That thought was me simmering at what I was hearing. The simmer soon boiled over into something approaching rage. Rage that that sort of vileness happens. Then, sure enough, right on cue, Shakespeare joined the conversation. 
for whatever reason, what I was hearing put me in mind of the opening lines of Shakespeare's great sonnet about lust. The sonnet begins, The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. Well, this, what Trevor was telling me about this horrible cross that he has to bear, this was the very definition of racism in action. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame. Harms Trevor, but also harms the people who make it clear how they feel about a fellow human being. Harms all of us. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame. Trevor is a train driver. When we parted company, I said to him, Trevor, the next time you're on a bus, save me a place beside you. You've been listening to the Today in London History podcast, emanating from www.walks.com, home of London Walks, London's signature walking tour company, London's local, time-honored, fiercely independent, family-owned, just the right size walking tour company. And as long as we're at it, London's multi-award-winning walking tour company. Indeed, London's only award-winning walking tour company. And here's the secret. London Walks is essentially run as a guides cooperative. That's the key to everything. It's the reason we're able to attract and keep the best guides in London. You can get schlubbers to do this for 20 pounds a walk, but you cannot get world-class guides, let alone accomplished professionals. It's not rocket science. You get what you pay for. And just as surely, you also get what you don't pay for. Back in 1968, when we got started, we quickly came to a fork in the road. We had to answer a searching question. Do we want to make the most money? Or do we want to be the best walking tour company in the world? You want to make the most money, you go the schlubber's route. You want to be the best walking tour company in the world. You do whatever you have to do to attract and keep the best guides in London. You want them guiding for you, not for somebody else. Bears repeating, the way we're structured, a guides cooperative is the key to the whole thing. It's the reason people who know go with London Walks. It's the reason we've got a big following, a lively, loyal, discerning following. Quality attracts quality. It's the reason we're able, uniquely, to front our walks with accomplished in many cases, distinguished professionals. By way of example, Stuart Purvis, the former editor and subsequently CEO of Independent Television News, and Lisa Honan, who had a distinguished career as a diplomat. Lisa was the governor of St. Helena, the island where Napoleon breathed his last and, some say, had his penis amputated. Napoleon didn't feel a thing, if things the mot juste, he was dead. Stuart and Lisa, both of them CBEs, are just a couple of our headline acts. The London Walk's all-star team of guides includes a former London mayor. It includes barristers, one of them an MBE, 
It includes doctors, geologists, museum curators, archaeologists, historians, criminal defense lawyers, university professors, Royal Shakespeare Company actors, a bevy of MVPs, Oscar winners, people who've won the big one, the Guide of the Year Award. Well, you get the idea. As that travel writer famously put it, if this were a golf tournament, every name on the leaderboard would be a London Walks guide. And as we put it, London Walks guides make the new familiar. And the familiar new. And on that agreeable note, come then, let us go forward together on some great London walks. And that's by way of saying, good Londoning one and all. See you next time.